So the supply chain to be able to launch a brand without having to go through a licensing adventure is there. So today in California, you could do that through, you know, you partner up with a licensed cultivator and co-packager. California goes to market through distributors that are obviously licensed as well. So as long as you have a licensed distributor buying from, a, you know, that licensed cultivator and ultimately shipping it to a licensed retailer and you're not taking possession of the product and, and putting it, let's just say, in your office, you could do that. And so, you know, I would say about half our the brands that we work with don't actually have a license on, on you know, themselves. They are contracting with us. They are contracted with a distributor who is ultimately fulfilling those orders at the dispensary level. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. I'm kicking things off to provide a really quick check-in regarding what is happening in Texas cannabis, since that is my home state and I do own a CBD dispensary here in Austin. The state of Texas is still in the middle of two cases which have been taken to the Supreme Court here. One is on Delta 8 THC and the other is on smokable hemp. They're both unfortunate things that the state is fighting us against as an industry, but regardless, we persist. The hearing for Delta 8 was actually on January 28th, so just a couple of weeks ago, and I don't believe at this time that they've set a new date but they basically continue to push that off. And we are looking forward to hopefully getting some resolution on that case. But as of right now, it is legal to sell Delta 8 in Texas. Now, regarding the smokable hemp ban, that case is supposed to be heard on March 22nd of 2022. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if that case gets pushed as well. And for those curious, the state originally banned smokable hemp back in 2019, and well, we've been back and forth with it ever since. So it just goes to show how politics work, how things happen inside legislation like legalizing hemp or banning smokable hemp, and then when lawsuits open up, how that adjusts things, and we just have to continue to navigate it. So I'm half joking when I say this, but equally serious to all of you who want to work in cannabis, buckle up. That's all I have to say about that. Now, in today's episode, we are going to tackle what is possible in the cannabis industry at large, but specifically in the state of California and in the California market. I think because so much of our industry is regulated and tied to licensing, we don't always clearly understand the available paths to move forward. And that is certainly one of my main goals of the podcast. I started this show to try to highlight all these different stories and backgrounds in the hopes of educating you, my sweet listener, on opportunities you might not have thought were a possibility. 
Now, y'all know from tuning into the podcast that I like to bring up and reference how every state operates uniquely. It's certainly not exclusive to the cannabis industry, but I believe we feel it very closely and more frequently in terms of just little nuances from packaging requirements varying state to state to actual licensing laws. For example, how some states are open for licenses like Oklahoma and there's no vertical integration requirements compared to states like Illinois, which is issuing a lottery system for licensing or even Florida, where there are limited licenses available and it's vertical integration only. So given that context, I hope you'll give me your full attention on this episode because it completely opened my mind to what is truly possible. And today's guest is eager to share what he's learned and especially what he's building. I'm joined by Possible CEO Jesus Barola. Possible is the cannabis farm of the future, and it's actually spelled P-O-S-I-B-L. If you can imagine, and Jesus will certainly cover this in more detail in the episode, but I personally was under the assumption that to operate in the cannabis industry, and I'll caveat that with anything plant touching, so a brand, a grow, a dispensary, in any state, in any capacity, you probably needed a license. And that is true for most of those avenues and certainly for some states. But with California at the forefront of today's conversation and going back to building a brand specifically, for example, this isn't always the case. Possible is already the engine for several of California's leading brands and over 1 million units of packaged products to date. Possible is redefining what it means to produce the highest quality cannabis. They leverage a state-of-the-art system that uses less to do more, and Possible brings the best greenhouse technology and expertise from traditional agriculture into cannabis and pairs it with the best possible genetics to produce the perfect flower. It's also grown in an ethical, sustainable, free of pesticide, and cost-efficient way year-round. So what they're doing is essentially powering the brands truly from the ground up by allowing someone with a brand, a true look, feel packaging, and go-to-market strategy to operate in the cannabis industry without obtaining a license. Now, before you jump the gun, you'll want to hear more about why this model won't work for just anyone or any brand. There are some clear things that brands need to do to be successful with this model, and Jesus touches on those today. So with that said, let's get straight to the episode. Please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Jesus to the show. Hello, my name is Jesus Burrola. I am the CEO for Possible. We're a grower and co-packager based out of Salinas, California. We grow and and co-package for 13 of the largest brands in California. We got started in December 2017. We operate a 12-acre farm, all greenhouse with supplemental LED lights. Our focus is on trying to produce, you know, indoor quality flower in a greenhouse setting in a much more sustainable and cost-efficient way. That's what we're set out to prove. Background of the company is really in ag. So the lead, who is main founder, comes from traditional ag, does this in tomatoes in Latin America, saw the opportunity to bring ag technology into cannabis, obviously, you know, because of how it came from, it either had to be done out in the mountains, hidden or it had to be done in basements. And there's pros and cons to both of those, both indoor and outdoor, a lot of it being the sustainability impact of indoor grow. 
obviously you get all the high quality and indoor, all the high THC, you get year round production, but it's expensive to grow that way. It's also not that great for the environment. Got outdoor grows that there's some great flower from outdoors, but you really can't control mother nature and the the weather elements. And you're obviously much more exposed to pests and diseases and you're going to get, you know, one crop a year. So the idea is to combine the best of those worlds, which we, we feel is greenhouse growing that allows you to have a controlled environment where we can give the plant optimal needs. You can have supplemental lighting so that you're, so that the winter crop is still very good, very good yield, very good quality but yet you're taking advantage of natural conditions, whether it be weather, sunlight, CO2. You're not having to recreate everything from scratch, which makes growing that way a lot more cost efficient and, and, and just ultimately better for the environment. We feel that that leads to you know, better future for the industry as a whole and ultimately a, a better value proposition for the consumer. Yeah, I was really fascinated when I learned about possible just understanding what I know about cannabis and obviously what I know about California cannabis and kind of putting y'all in that interesting position of one, I thought it was really fascinating just to pull some, you know, information from your press releases and things like that. You're empowering brands by being a B2B vehicle, business to business vehicle. You want to create a cannabis brand, but don't know how to do it. There's a pathway for anyone looking to participate in the industry as a brand. So that's really fascinating to me because I think it's great to have an idea of wanting to be in the cannabis industry or wanting to create a brand in the cannabis industry, but knowing that there's different, I guess, hurdles to go through, whether you're in a state that's requiring vertical integration or not. Obviously, California doesn't require that. And I think I even saw some article that y'all were quoted in talking about, you know, which is the spirit, I think, of the cannabis industry at large, which is stay in your lane, like be a really great expert at what you do. And kind of work with different leaders, respectively, whether it's the growing and the cultivating side to the distribution or the actual dispensing side. And so focusing on not only the, I guess, opportunity and possibility, but that empowerment of being able to create new brands. And so I want to dig a little bit deeper and kind of set the stage for people. What is, I guess, California cannabis look like currently in terms of Let's say I have an idea. I live in California and I want to make a cannabis brand. Do I need to go get a license to be able to work with you? Do I bring you my brand identity and idea? Like, how does that connection happen from a brand to working with Possible to ultimately having a product that's being sold in dispensaries? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So the supply chain to be able to launch a brand without having to go through a licensing adventure is there. So today in California, you could do that through, you know, you partner up with a licensed cultivator and co-packager. California goes to market through distributors that are obviously licensed as well. So as long as you have a licensed distributor buying from, a, you know, that licensed cultivator and ultimately shipping it to a licensed retailer, and you're not taking possession of the product and, and putting it, let's just say in your office, you could do that. And so, you know, I would say about half our the brands that we work with don't actually have a license on, on you know themselves. They are contracting with us. They are contracted with a distributor who is ultimately fulfilling those orders at the dispensary level. So, so what they have to do is really come up with the marketing concept behind what the brand needs to look like. They have to you know invest their time and energy into 
consumer acquisition and, and having a brand that represents something to that consumer that is going to pick them over everything else on the shelf. But I think that that's a much easier path than, let's just say, the other way of trying to be a vertically integrated company and say, you know, one, that requires a lot of capital. And I think the common misconception with cannabis is that, oh, everybody everybody is probably has a pretty smooth ride. It must be a pretty easy and fun. It, it's a hard business. Requires a lot of man hours, requires a lot of capital. And so when you're trying to, let's say, you know, oh, I want to be vertically integrated, then you have to learn about agriculture. You have to learn about real estate. You have to learn about compliance. You have to learn about, you know, what the ins and outs of distribution are, how to operate a retailer. So it's it's hard enough to do any single one of those things than to try to do all 10 of those at the same time. It just gets very, very complicated. You know, a farm like ourselves, we have over a hundred folks working day in and day out. So that's a lot of people to manage, a lot of processes that happen that need to happen every single day. And so I think that there's a better way to do that. There's folks that are fantastic at branding and marketing and consumer acquisition and uh, using the internet to, to gain visibility. It's much more better use of their time to go and, and put those talents to use in creating a brand than it is to, to go through everything else from scratch. That's so fascinating to me. It kind of makes me, I mean, my brain is going in a couple directions. One, kind of wanting to understand, was that y'all's intention originally with Launching Possible to really, I mean, almost be like a, I don't want to call it like a ghost kitchen, right? But that kind of scenario where you're producing for other people, do y'all produce your own brand to some extent with anything, or is it really just growing for other people? And then kind of the secondary side of that is, does this model exist in other markets currently? Are other businesses doing this in California? Because it's almost a little bit of a, a mind fuck, pardon my French, of I, I, I think so much of what we're taught and exp- uh, expecting to participate in the cannabis industry is like acquiring licenses, right? Depending on whatever state you're trying to operate in, it's well, you want to own a license, you want to get a license, you want to be somebody who's holding that golden ticket, so to say, to actually be able to grow or process or distribute or sell. And basically what you're saying is, hey, if you're a really great marketer, which you know a lot of us are who are mm-hmm. listening, they could really just go through you. I mean, it sounds like I don't even have to be, I mean, a, a California resident to actually produce a exactly. brand potentially in California. No, exactly. And I mean, and, and this model is actually being put, I mean, some of our brand partners have started to license and expand across the country, and that's going to be much easier to do through this asset light model than it is going to be buying assets in a bunch of different states. And, and I mean, I think the biggest equity opportunity for a brand is for somebody to come in and build a national brand, powerful brand in cannabis. And I think folks that have learned how to operate in this way through partnerships and asset light model and understand the opportunity of licensing in other states. Uh, I mean, take Old Pal, for example, one of our partners, they're in six different states, right? And I, I think they've done a phenomenal job. Yeah, I just talked to somebody who works with them also, and they were kind of expressing, I guess, like teeing up almost what y'all are doing for them, but understanding that you're only in California. So if they're operating in another state, it's obviously not possible who's growing. It's another maybe cultivar or or asset light. I love that kind of framing of it version of this 
this grow operation that is supplying the quality of flour that they are, you know, selling to customers through their brand and brand packaging. Now, I want to kind of go back a little bit and get a better scope and understanding of the actual facility and how, I mean, you said 12,000 square feet. So like how many plants or 1,200? 120,000 square feet in cultivation right now. 120,000. Okay. I misheard a couple <laughs> no, zeros. No, no, it's all good. And, uh, and actually in the process of building out another 120,000. So Jeez. Okay. So let, like put that in numbers of plants for me and I'll kind of, you know, expl- express this for the listeners as well. Right. When you're, you kind of mentioned it as well, when you're doing outdoor growing, you're really limited based on the seasonality, which is why I often try to educate and express, you know, depending on geographically where you're located, it might be better suited to grow cannabis. So for example, in Texas, just because hemp is legal and you can now grow hemp, outdoor growing is probably not the best situation for Texas brands to take because it's difficult. You only get so much yield out of those crops. And like you said, you're dealing with the weather and other forces, external forces, Mm -hmm. versus if you're indoor growing, you have more control over that. And so I know that one, y'all are greenhouse growing. So there's that set. So you're able to grow year round. I know y'all also take some other measures to make it a little bit more automated. If you can talk about that as well, but kind of at a capacity level, how many plants are you growing on a yearly basis? Is there constantly a rotation? How many strains And then kind of what is that output to for your customers? Like I'm envisioning, is it almost like old pal has a little section and those are all their plants. And, you know, maybe your other client has another little section and those are all their plants. Like how does that work for you to set up this and scale it for new brands who want to come on the market? Yeah, I think from a volume standpoint, you're right. So the turns is a very important component to it. Since we can control the photo periods of the plant, we actually get five and a half to six harvest a year. So we have six turns on the 120,000 square feet. So it's actually the equivalent of having 600,000 square feet in cultivation. At any given point, we're flowering, you know, somewhere around 30,000 plants at any given point, And those will rotate five to six times a year. You know, the way we work with brands in terms of, well, how do you dedicate you know, certain strains, certain genetics, or how do you, how do you carve out the menu? That, that really is a combination. And, and so there, we work with brands that want to control everything from genetics and have exclusives and say, Hey, I want you to grow these five strains for me that, you know, I've grown forever, or I've sourced and are really special to me or match, you know, what my consumer wants. And then there's brands that just say, Hey, I want, you're the grower. You figure out what the best strains are. That's your expertise. Tell me what yields and test the highest. Here's my spec. I want indicas that test test over 25% THC and et cetera. And then we're always constantly going through genetic acquisition. So we work with a lot of breeders in the market, legacy breeders to source the best strains. And we'll, you know, a lot of brands will come here at the end of every month trying to determine what they want to package for the next month, come and see all the latest harvest go and walk the greenhouses and see what's coming up. And we can give the brands visibility six months out of what we're going to have in what volume and in what strain. And so, you know, for those that haven't predetermined their strain selection, it's a kind of first come first serve. They'll come and see what makes the most sense for their brand. No, that's really cool because again, it goes back to empowering and almost streamlining that experience for 
ultimately what's being delivered to the customer. So high quality flour, but really that experience for these brands to, again, do what they do best and not maybe get bogged down. And I'm sure there are some brands, like you said, who really care about the genetics and they really want to have their oversight in terms of the percentages or the terpenes, I'm sure, or the profiles of these strains versus some brands who maybe their brand is all about, you know, we change the strain every month and it's Mm -hmm. the better high quality strain from the next month. And, you know, it can kind of maybe part of their brand identity to kind of be, keep it a little bit more changing versus consistency, right? There's a hundred percent. And we, and and we have both, we have uh, brands that always want the latest strains, whatever's, you know, hottest and newest in the markets. And then there's brands that say, Hey, these are the six strains that, that, that are key for us and are going to be staples. And that's what we want to grow and, and package over the next year. On packaging, I saw that was a part of what your offering is. And you mentioned as well, being able to essentially create a brand and not have to touch it. So I'm assuming if I actually took the flower from you and packaged it myself, I would have to get a license, right? Yeah, That you, component would require... You would, or you would have to you know, contract with a licensed co-packager. I think the beauty of being able to do both in-house is that, and and that's, I think, very typical in the market, right? So you typically have all these growers, but they don't have a co-packaging facility. And so then you've got contracts with both and you have to streamline both supply chains because they're all on different schedules. And then there's QC that happens and there's finger pointing between both parties and saying, hey, you know, you bought 50 pounds, but after I QC'd it, there's 38 pounds of usable flour. And then who, whose fault is that? Then you're stuck with all the finger pointing back and forth between your po- co-packager and your grower. By the way, you know, you have to pay your grower up front for those 50 pounds, wait till it gets worked out, you know, take another month for your co-packager to handle it. So with us, it's one supply chain and you're paying for what you get. So you're not having to deal with any of the shrinkage. You're not having to be the mediator between two QC departments of like why you may have not gotten what you thought you paid for. You have one phone call, you have one supply chain. You don't, you know, you place your order, you pay for it when you're ready to come and pick up finished flour. Well, going off of that too, just understanding, I think some of the, I guess, nuances of the industry in terms of packing and labeling, right? Do y'all provide almost like consulting to these brands or is it really up to the brand to come and say like, Hey, labels got to change. I got to change what's on them. And like, how involved are y'all in that process in terms of keeping track of not only the, and, I, and I'm curious, does the growing regulations change that much year over year or have those been pretty consistent? And then, because on the packaging side, I imagine that kind of is ever evolving. I mean, and just yeah. all the guests I've talked to, it's like, oh, we got to use a different symbol all of yes, a sudden. It's, so it changes. And we didn't set up or pretend to be, you know, compliant experts. But at the same time, when you're packaging for, you know, 13 to 15 brands, you learn a lot. Like you, you have all this information that, you know, one of your 15 brands is ahead of that curve on compliance and coming and saying, Hey, this is going to happen next month. I'm adapting. So there's a lot of built-in knowledge that we get that we obviously, you know, if there's anything that's compliance related, we want to make sure all our brands stay compliant. We wouldn't, 
we wouldn't say that, you know, we go, we become their compliance arm. I think that's ultimately still on the brand and, and especially when it comes to packaging, because there's so much that's design and, and, and marketing as it relates to packaging that, that we want to have the brands take control of that. But we absolutely help and make sure that if we're seeing something that's not going to be compliant, especially for the brands that are newer to the market that are coming to us, we always, you know, hey, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? Not only on a compliance standpoint, but actually on an efficiency. I'll take something that people, you know, have learned lessons the hard way is pre-rolls. So, you know, you have a lot of brands that it makes a lot of sense to have a super skinny cigarette looking pre-roll, looks great. But then what happens? It's impossible to package. And, and so then your inefficiencies as a co-packager and your costs go way up and it ends up kicking these brands from the price point that they originally thought it was going to cost them. So we do say, hey, listen, let me help you there. These are cones that we already know we can implement automation to and drive your costs down as opposed to, hey, maybe this super boutique cone, but it's a nightmare to package. And, you know, you're going to things like pre-rolls, it's almost as much labor costs that go into package it as it is flower costs. So it make it, it can end up becoming a huge difference. Yeah, I understand completely. We just started doing pre-rolls in-house with our CBD brand. And I mean, by no means are we at the volume that y'all are doing it, but it is so nuanced. Even just the other day, I went into our operations and noticed, you know, one pre-roll was slightly thicker than the next pre-roll, but my team was like, well, by weight, they're both still one gram, but visually one kind of looks taller than the other. And then you layer on top of that, like you're saying, you know, trying to put it into packaging. And so I guess it's just an interesting, they're just real problems that people are trying to navigate, right? And I think people don't really understand all those different, I guess, little kind of like hooks that you have to kind of think through. And so like you're saying too, the customers are maybe upfront being like, this is what we want for our brand. This is the style. This is the aesthetic. And then it's like, in actuality, well, it's going to maybe cost you $2 more per (laughs) pre-roll for us to execute it looking like that. But that kind of leads me to my next question, which I'm really fascinated to understand more on, you know, I totally believe that the rising tide lifts all boats. So it's Mm -hmm. great to hear. Obviously you have this great group of clients and they are some, maybe are a little bit more ahead of the curve. And also I stand by, which is kind of the ethos for this podcast, you know, sharing information because not everybody is you, you're uniquely you, you have, you know, the way that you formulate or put things together, or you're an expert in this area that maybe I'm not in, but competition, like how does that kind of exist? And what's been your experience working with the brands that you've worked with? Do they feel there's competition or is there more like camaraderie? Like, oh, we all work with Possible. Because I saw some of your brands like Union Electric is very proud to be a Possible Mm -hmm. powered company. And so it seems also like a, a value add to obviously, you know, like work with people like yourselves versus hide it almost in like a white labeling mm-hmm. situation. So I'm just curious, as I imagine this model is going to continue to evolve in the cannabis industry at large. And when you're talking about brands, like obviously competition, but price point varies, quality of product, the actual packaging, the go-to-market yes. strategy, those are all nuanced things. But you're kind of at that epicenter of like, yes, brands, come all get your flower from us. 
and we'll all, you know, pack, grow it and pack it for you. What does that actually do yeah. to the industry in terms of competition? No, actually, I would say, I mean, and cannabis is, even though it, you know, $18 billion industry, it's still a small circle. So most of our brand partners know the other founders and, and owners of the brands. And there's actually a lot of good camaraderie and friendship that, that exists there. I would say there is not a lot of, even though I could say there's 15 brands, there's very few that compete head on at the same price point with the same product, right? Because we're manufacturing pre-rolls for some companies, we're, man, you know, we're packaging uh, top flower eights, over 30% THC for some companies at one price point, and then we'll be packaging smalls for a different company at a different price point with very different targets on the THC or nug count. So there is actually not as much overlap as you would think in direct competition. And, and I think the second part is who they branded market to. So we have brands that are focused, let's just say one of the recent brands that we signed up, they're going after a heavy metal music crowd. Well, that what does that have to do with somebody that's going after West Side LA surfer crowd? And, and you see these two packagings and you know even though maybe the price point is similar, you say, this actually doesn't speak to the same consumer at all. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister. So we are family owned and women owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin. So if you ever find yourself in central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show. No, that's really cool and, and fair perspective to point out because I think it's such a, I mean, the podcast again for me has done such a good job of kind of like showing more behind the scenes of the cannabis industry, but existing in Texas, competition is relevant and it's there, but you also have such, it's just like the market is so unstable here in Texas that, you know, you could have a really great brand, but just due to the operations and how things are going and Certainly COVID played a factor in that. You know, we had a lot of brands that existed prior to COVID here in Austin. And then after COVID, more than half those brands are gone. And now you've got a handful of other brands that are popping up. And so it's just, I think, always kind of in the back of, I think, any business owner's mind, you know, how do I carve out a niche in the industry and also, you know, work with my providers to partner up and deliver on that quality and excellence. So it is just like a really interesting um kind of position that y'all are in where you're able to work with so many different brands and cool to hear that there's not so much competition, but more camaraderie. Um, I do want to go into a little bit to understanding more about the sustainability of your grow. You touched a little bit on obviously the capacity and also my observation from what we've talked about and what I understand about possible, you're just touching flour and packaging flour. There's no you know, extraction or processing happens. So nobody's really coming to you to be like, I want to make a really great edible, right? Not, not, like that's not. 
Not today. We are actually in the process of a major build-out. We're building a brand-new state-of-the-art processing facility and also building out additional high-tech greenhouses as well. So those that new processing facility will include extraction. So that that is something that we're getting into, but we don't do today. Okay, got it. Well, cool. I'm I'm excited for this because again, I think it's empowering a lot of people to get involved in the cannabis industry who maybe had like prior limitations. But again, going back to your grow operation, just some of the stats I pulled from your website, you know, y'all are able to use 150% less power, 50% less water. Again, obviously year-round production with no pesticides. How do you operate that facility? What tech is involved? And you mentioned the volume of your team size, but in actuality, like how do you execute against that? And how do you scale that as you're adding on, you know, a hundred thousand more feet of operations? The easy question is that you get very smart people. So, which is not me. So the background of our company that comes from big ag and we have Two key people, I would say, that handle the ag side for us. One would be Pepe Calderon, who's our director of cultivation. He's worked at some of the largest greenhouse projects in the United States. So uh, for a lot of the large tomato companies, he I think he was recently with a company called App Harvest, which is a giant, very tech-forward company, greenhouse in Kentucky. And then I have, you know, we have Hector, who's our COO, who comes from running 600 acres of greenhouses down in Mexico. So those guys have grown at a, at a industrial large scale and understand technology and understand automation very well. So I think it starts with a climate control system and sensors and, and how to put the right information to, to help that greenhouse automate. So things like lighting are automated, things like blackout covers, irrigation, ventilation, dehumidification strategy. I mean, and all that ties together and and there's a lot of science and knowledge that goes into that, but having a team that's operated at a large scale is, is critical. It's the larger you get, the harder it is to execute to your point. So 5,000 square foot grow is different than running than a 150,000 square foot grow. You can't necessarily touch every single plant and see every single plant. And so you do have to depend and some technology, and then obviously some processes to institute with the team to make sure things are getting done. But I tip my hat to those guys. They do a great job. Yeah, it's a great, obviously, like feat and endeavor to be able to pull off and execute. But like you're highlighting, it's not by chance that you've happened upon this successful system. It's people who have joined your team who have been operating ag tech and cultivating other commodity crops for years and decades, it sounds, and being able to transfer that knowledge into cannabis is a very relatable story, right? I think that's the exciting thing is so many people who I think agriculture is challenging, right? There's definitely big wins in it, but it's also a very difficult industry to be in, especially I imagine for some smaller farmers or growers. And so to be able to see an opportunity of getting into cannabis and being able to implement that is really empowering, I'm sure, for all the people on your team to be able mm-hmm. to like, hey, let's like take this information and like transfer it into this output. But then to kind of add this B2B machine on top of it to me is just so fascinating because you really 
I mean, I haven't heard of anybody doing it to this capacity. I've heard of people. I did an episode with Copper State Farms early on. Yeah, exactly. Are they still the largest indoor grow in the United States? I think that was what they were saying about a year ago. Yeah, I mean they're they're a very large. But they grow. they're growing for their own brands. Correct, correct, correct. And I mean they have a a little versus bit versus y'all are growing for other people's brands. Correct. Yeah, uh, they're growing for their own brand. They have a, a a similar background actually. So they they're also migrated from the tomato industry in a high tech greenhouse setting with automation. So it, it, it's a lot yes. of the same similar uh, foundation of the company. You're right. The difference with us is that our focus is on the B2B side. And and so some of that has to do with how to match up production and scale to sales demand for product. To have efficiency, you need scale to, to kind of bring your cost curve down. But it is very difficult. You know, I work, again, with 15 large brands in the state, and it's hard for them to go through all my product. And that's 15 brands. So imagine if I had one brand and I was trying to sell out this grow, it, you know, it'd be very, very hard to do. And uh, I, I would end up having to run, you know, one of the largest grows and one of the largest brands. And, and that's not a very easy thing to do. I think we're interested in going way deeper ag side uh, gaining scale, continuing to gaining efficiencies, introducing new technology, and really kind of trying to pursue that uh, top-end quality spectrum that you can in a greenhouse setting. Like, you know, our, uh, you know, I mentioned that we're building out another 120,000 square foot. That is state-of-the-art greenhouses. Like, we feel like we've proven our thesis with the greenhouses that we have today, which is like, you can get very, very good quality in a greenhouse setting, I think the final proof is, well, well, can you actually make it match or be better than indoor? And and we feel we can with the right technology. So that's what we're building today and excited to see that come to light. I want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, the brand partnership side and how you maybe look to bring on new clients or partners? Is there any, you know, checklist or or quality that you have to kind of go through to make sure that someone might be a good fit for you to work with them? But before I go into that question, I did want to ask, just because I know California cannabis is so, I guess, proud is probably the word I'll use. They're so proud of their outdoor grow what has been the sentiment as y'all have entered the market into this industry? And, and you said you're working with some of the top brands, you know, kind of from an output perspective of who's like on a shelf. How does that kind of go over? Do you talk to a lot of the outdoor growers? Or are they like, oh, you indoor growers are crazy? Or is there some like, okay, you know, we see the tech, we see the, you know, the scalability of what you're doing. Kind of like, what's that like no, right now? I, I mean, I think uh, I tip my hat to the outdoor growers and a lot of them are the legacy growers that created this industry. So there is nothing but respect, right? Farmer to farmer, grower to grower. What they do is not easy. I think, you know, and, may, and maybe sometimes the market has been a little bit unfair because uh, what they've done is separate 
price ranges into how cannabis is grown. And that doesn't always necessarily translate into what the actual quality is because there's crappy greenhouse cannabis being grown and there's some fantastic outdoor cannabis being grown. And, and unfortunately, you know, for a lot of the buyers or the brand selling into the dispensaries, the first question is, well, how is it grown? And, and really that that's kind of backwards in my mind. You know, you don't, if you're buying, you know, an apple or if you're buying whatever fruit or vegetable, you care about how good the quality is, how, how great does it taste? How good does it look? You don't really care how it was grown. And so I think it's, it's friendly there that we're both participants in the industry and there's absolutely room and space for both the outdoor, indoor and greenhouse growth to all coexist in that space. It's ultimately different consumers want different things. I think from a brand standpoint, depending on outdoor gets harder to do because, you know, you want consistency year round. And obviously with the outdoor growing growers having one, one harvest a year, maybe two if they do an auto flower zone, then, then how do you have fresh product on the shelf year round? You know, when you're depending on, on outdoor grow, that's harder to do. It doesn't mean that they don't produce great flower uh, when they have their harvest. It just means, you know, from a year-round production empowering a brand, it's harder to do. No, I mean, that makes sense. And I totally hear you on what you're saying in terms of, you know, for sure, respecting the legacy growers. I think that's a given from a cannabis industry perspective. I mean, they certainly have paved the way, especially California growers, it's yeah. it's been underground for so long and finally to see it transitioning into the light, I'm sure there's still mixed sentiment because some people are able to not profit off of the conversion going into the legal market, but at least it's trying to make an honest opportunity, I think, for people to exist. But yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of categories, right? I mean, it's an interesting conversation when kind of using black market to, you know, the the rec market, it's you used to not really get to have a lot of choice in what you were consuming. And now that you have choice and you have markets and you have brands and you have customers, I mean, you just even saying, you know, you have a heavy metal client, that's a particular customer base. You know, they want their packaging a certain way. They want their flower a certain way, or that brand at least is educating that customer to want their flower a certain way. And so I think it happens on both sides of the aisle, right? You have people who are very uh, die hard about outdoor growth for respective reasons, but there's so much value in greenhouse grow just based on the um, quality and scalability that you're able to offer to your clients. So going back right. into the question a little bit, wanting to understand, do you see people are coming to you with their brand already actualized for your, I guess, products to be for lack of a better, you know, term like fit into like, Hey, I want to make a pre-roll brand. This is my name. This is my packaging. I just need flour. Or are people maybe like, I have no idea what I want to do, but I know I want to make something with you guys. And do you have kind of like a checklist or like a, a gatekeeping of yes, we'll work with you or no, we won't work with you. And kind of what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, uh, and it goes a little bit to the intricacies in the market. Uh, I mentioned California uh, goes through distribution, I think, because, and I talked about some of our partners not having an actual license, which means they can't buy the product or take possession directly. And 
some of the distributors that, that work in the space, actually a lot of the larger ones go through a consignment model where it's ultimately us as growers holding the bag on the product until it gets sold, right? So we're carrying the financial burden. So for me, what's important is, is there, there is a good sales plan to the brand, right? Because especially if you're an asset light brand and you know, you're more than likely working with a distributor that's not going to take possession of the product, then that I'm actually carrying all the commercial risk in the relationship. So that that's the only part that I think we're, you know, is, is kind of the go or no go. Like you can be a new brand, but hey, are you actually committed to dedicating resources on the sales side? Like, what does that look like? Do you have a sales team? Do you have a distributor? Have you sold, uh, you know, what what's your team makeup? Like, is there a budget to put this thing into market? Or is it, you know, because you're not, taking possession and not necessarily paying up front? Like, is it just, uh, hey, well, hey, you're, you're, you're carrying all the risk. You're like, sure, I'll do a brand. If it doesn't work, it doesn't cost me any money anyways, <laughs> right? So th- I think that that's the most important component to that. But um, I-, I think branding is some brands hit, some brands don't. And, and even the great marketers could tell you sometimes it's a little bit of a, of a crapshoot, um, you don't know why certain brands took off and some didn't and you know, they're wrong half the time. So I, you know, their guess is as good as mine. Um, everybody can have an opportunity to go and put that brand to market. I think, you know, the only thing we're trying to make sure is that we're not bearing unreasonable risk on the commercial side. So I didn't really understand this consignment model. So when you were saying that you have to take on the cost for some of these brands that makes sense from a qualification of like why someone would or wouldn't maybe work with you guys because you are taking and incurring some of that cost. But is that normal? I I mean, I haven't really heard or learned a lot about the consignment model. Is that unique to your position because of what you're doing based on the lack of that middle brand having the license or like, how does that kind of work out? It, it actually has to do more with uh, the distributor's strategy. So it, it, this model is actually newer. And I think what, what, what was happening in the past was the distributors started to pivot in this direction because you had distributors that were paying for these brands' products to go and distribute it. But again, the same dynamic I spoke about, not necessarily having a sales plan or you know, really a way to go get the product in market, then the distributor was left holding the bag because they bought the product from the brand and, and, then, the brand, and then the brand didn't place it in the, in the dispensaries or didn't do th- their part of the heavy lifting to get that done. And so what you saw were uh, distributors starting to say, well, listen, I can't be incurring this cost. So sure brand, I'll take your product, but I'm not paying you until it's sold. <laughs> and, and and so ultimately what that became is because these brands were asset light, uh, you know, it, it really is on the co-packager to bear that burden, if you will. No, that makes sense. And I will highlight one of your brands because I saw it on your website. So I hope it's okay to mention them, but Space Coyote, I had Libby on the podcast earlier this year, last year, sometime time is fleeting me sometimes, but just remembering from her podcast episode, she was very much expressing, and she lives in Hawaii, right? Like she's living in Hawaii out of the state. So this model makes sense. 
kind of full circle for me to understand kind of how her operation is running. But she was expressing how she goes to these dispensaries and is promoting and peddling and educating on her products. So it's no surprise why Space Coyote is being successful in that capacity. And it's because like you're articulating, you know, it's one thing to have an idea for a brand or to find all the partners and components to like, okay, we got a good packaging. Well, we got good product in the bag. Well, yeah, if it's just sitting there at the distributor and nobody's buying it and you haven't figured out how am I going to sell this? What's my go-to-market plan? I think that is such good advice for anybody listening to just kind of really take some time and think through because I'm sure when we started this podcast episode, people were like, oh, I'm going to go maybe talk to Jesus and start a brand in California. And the reality is like, yes, you can do that. But do you have the, like you said, sales team in place? Do you understand how you're going to get it distributed? Kind of what's that plan? How are you going to sell this product? How are you going to market and get to those consumers? And I think that that is such a real narrative, again, for people to just really understand whether they're trying to play in the California market or just hemp in general and cannabis in general. I think that's where, personally speaking, again, I think just what I've observed watching the cannabis industry unfold from my corner of the universe. Yeah, you can have a really great brand, but a really bad you know, marketing strategy or just not really executing with the right partners. And so there's a lot of people who want to be in cannabis, but the execution of how you navigate through the industry is really, really important. So I, I really appreciated that little yeah. um, piece of information. And Libby and Scott are great. They're awesome partners. Uh, we love doing business with them. Uh, I'd say not just the hard work they put at the dispensary level, but it, They've also really connected with the consumer base. That that brand uh, means something to a lot of people. And so there's seven, 800 brands in California competing for shelf space. You know, that dispensary is going to buy, you know, what, 30 to 40 brands that are going to get sh- shelf space. So your brand has to has to mean something. Uh, I mean, you go to the Hall of Flowers and, and, and you can meet 200 brands. So you have to be able to speak to a specific consumer. And I think you've got to be able to execute on, on not just packaging and designing a cool brand, but on actually getting it to market. Yeah, no, I love that. And I really respect that too. And just obviously coming from California where you are in a good way, but saturated with cannabis brands and people trying to navigate the market and bring these products to market. And so, yeah, I was always fascinated with how, you know, who picks these brands to be on the shelves and like what kind of goes into that process to to be chosen so to speak and it's it's obviously a combination of all of these things but then that truly execution on how you're going to deliver it is what i think is differentiating certain brands from other brands and i would say i mean as cannabis evolves like the entire supply chain uh, i came from a background that that was more on building materials distribution and it was common there to you know and i know it's very common in in liquor to have sales agencies that focus just on going you know knocking on doors educating the buyers at the different you know liquor stores or or retail outlets on brands and and drumming up demand so that's now beginning to occur in cannabis as well so there's you know three or four different sales agencies that help support brands because you want to be a statewide brand that that's the hard part like 
okay, well, to cover the state of California is pretty big. You, you can't do it with one or two uh, persons. You need, you know, probably a team of eight, 10 different people. So how do you do that as a start, as a startup brand, uh, you know, maybe bootstrap, like that's very hard to do. So I am happy to to see that now that part of the supply chain is also coming along and there's sales agencies that can help support brands. So like um, Pedal Fast is one that we've worked with and, and uh, you know, I know, for example, uh, some of our brands work with as well that that's done a very nice job in, in uh, filling that hole for brands in California as well. Well, so you're just a circle back around on this too. You're in Salinas, California. Where is that in relationship to the state? I mean, like you said, California is a large state, especially elongated. So I don't know, but what is the distance from, let's say, South California to North California? Like the tip, it's got to be what, like five, six hours? Oh, way, way more than that. Way more than that. Uh, we sit in the middle or not in the middle, but between San Francisco and Los Angeles, which is not even the most Southern and Northern part of the state. And we're five hours North of LA, two hours South of San Francisco. Would you say that a lot of your clients are coming from that region or that area, or are they really coming from all over California, just trying to look for partners and suppliers that can execute on their brand? Most of the brands do come from either LA or or the Bay. I, I, I would say the brands, but I mean, for a brand, you're looking to cover dispensaries, and that is all throughout the state. And you have, you know, East Bay, Sacramento. Uh, it's just a big state. A lot, lot of yeah, a lot of ground to cover. A lot of ground to cover, indeed. Well, I really appreciated this conversation. I thought that it was super informative, and I'm really excited about the future of not only Possible's business and certainly the expansion that you're going after, but truly about the impact that you're able to make in the cannabis industry by empowering these great brands to come to market and educate. Because at the end of the day, you know that's where my passion and heart lies. Is we're selling consumer products and people are at the other end of all of this work we're doing. They're sitting there, they're opening the baggie up, they're smelling it, they're lighting the joint, um, and they're hopefully having a more personal relationship to cannabis. And it's you know definitely at the hand of businesses like yourself. So if there's anything that you want to kind of final add or share, I'd love to open the floor for you. No, I, I appreciate it. I just want to say thank you for the education that you're doing. I think that that is a big part of what we've got to do as a community is educate the consumer. And so I really much uh, appreciate the work that you do. And thank you very much for having me. Super fascinating to learn that you can have a brand, a successful brand in cannabis in California, one of the most competitive states without the headache of obtaining a license. Now, I'm not saying if you want to secure a license that that isn't a better path. In my opinion, owning a license is a security and guarantee to operate within the legal confines. I just also know not every state is going to open up licensing or the fee or other requirements to qualify might not be attainable. And so for those people who are looking for other options out there, I hope that this was encouraging. I hope this episode ignited some inspiration and curiosity in you. And I'm curious if other states have this type of model. So if you are representing or working or, you know, live, do something in a state that has a similar type of opportunity or model or kind of like structure, 
please reach out because I'm always curious and love to learn what's going on in other states. Um, I personally haven't heard too much about this approach from other states or just in general, but listening to Jesus really helped provide some opportunity and possibility of what is possible. So with that said, thanks for tuning into another episode, kicking it with me. And as always, I appreciate you keeping it blunt with me. I'll be back with another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast next Monday and encourage you to keep championing cannabis in your community. Bye, y'all. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi.com.